Amen. I was struck, Ronnie, while you were praying, that language of battle. You know, you're talking about the battles that we go through. And that's language that we're going to look at a little bit this morning. You forgot. I know, I forgot. Actually, I didn't need it. That was okay. I didn't need it. Let me put my... There we go. That was getting heavy. <laughs> um, we do go through battles. We, we go through battles, but it's an interesting way to talk about life, isn't it? That we go through battles and we have to win victories and God fights for us. We're going to come back to that language in just a minute. Last week... You might remember 1 Samuel chapter 13, we were seeing how Saul disobeyed God. He had offered a sacrifice he was not to offer, and Samuel told him because of that, he would not have a dynasty. His son would not serve as king of Israel. And I mentioned at that time that this becomes a habit with Saul. As you go forward in his life, he disobeys time and again. And we're going to read in 1 Samuel that he disobeys God. 1 Samuel, rather, chapter 15. That's where we're going to focus today. That's in preparation for next week. Because next week in our life groups, 1 Samuel 15 will be the passage that we focus on. And that chapter contains one of the best known passages in all the Old Testament. Maybe you're familiar with it. Here it is. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. But you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. These are Samuel's words to Saul because Saul had disobeyed God thinking that he could somehow substitute for obedience by offering up a sacrifice. And Samuel says, not so. God desires obedience before he wants sacrifice. And now not only will his dynasty not be established, but his kingdom is in jeopardy. Do you know what commands Saul disobeyed in this chapter? Samuel is telling him he's going to be judged because he disobeyed the express command of God. Do you know what that command was? Ah, this is where it gets uncomfortable. This is where we start having questions. Here it is. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. 
But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry. And he cried out to the Lord all that night. Now, that's a troubling passage because the command is to wipe out the Amalekites, men and women, children and infants, and all the animals too. So, early in the week, I was studying this passage and I thought to myself, Surely there has to be a way I can preach this passage without talking about this. Isn't there some way I can avoid this whole subject? I went to Blake's office and I said, Blake, there's got to be a way. (laughs) We were talking about this subject. So next week, the life groups are going to focus on that first text I read the importance of obedience and obeying God entirely. That is the thrust of the chapter. That is the lesson to be derived from the chapter. But I don't feel like a pastor that I can just say nothing about the dark side of this passage, this horrible command to slaughter everyone. How does that fit at all within the Christian faith? Now, some of you won't ask that question because the way you view it, and this is not a put down, I just know because I've talked with people, the way you view it is like this. God decided to do it. God is God. They must have deserved it. That settles it. And, you know, in many ways, that's a good response because what you're assuming is that the good God has good purposes and you're not going to question those. You're just going to take it as it stands. You're just going to accept it. And you may feel a little bit impatient with me taking any time to talk about this subject because you think, you know what, it's in the Bible. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But as a matter of fact, as a pastor, I've talked with people enough to know many people struggle with this passage. I also know the church has struggled with it historically. Do you know for almost the first 1,500 years of church history, most teachers would have told you this really didn't happen. It looks like a historical narrative, but actually this was just an allegorical story that God told to teach us a lesson about spiritual warfare. They interpreted it that way because they had trouble accepting that God would make such a command. The God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, commanding the slaughter of the Amalekites, how could that be? And of course, they taught that not just of this passage, but of the conquest when Joshua goes into Canaan and conquers, and in any other passage in the Old Testament that was a little uncomfortable. With the reformers, there was a return to a more literal reading of the Bible, and they said, no, actually, this is a historical narrative, and God gave this command. John Calvin, one of the giants in the history of Christian theology, said, you may not like it, but get over it because God is God and he has the right to do as he wishes. Now, I'm paraphrasing, you understand, but I mean, that's essentially what he said. And that's not completely wrong. 
God gives and God takes away. And we say with Joe, blessed be the name of the Lord. We get that. And so we struggle, even though we respect God's rights, because it doesn't seem like we've got a consistency here. It's not a matter of disbelieving the Bible. It's how do you reconcile this with what we learn about Jesus, both in the Bible. Some Christians have sought to deal with it by saying, well, you know, that's the Old Testament, not the New Testament. The Old Testament, they didn't really understand God. They thought God told them to do it, but he really didn't tell them to do it. And that sounds like a great solution, except not only do you get rid of 1 Samuel 15, but you get rid of Joshua, large parts of Deuteronomy. Eh, Got to throw the flood out because after all, the flood killed men, women, and children, and all the animals too. Got to get rid of the plagues of Egypt so we can't have the exodus because men, women, children, and animals too suffered there. And of course, when the prophets talk about God judging Israel, well, we got to do away with that because that can't work either. Oops, it doesn't stay in the Old Testament. We got the New Testament too. Jesus utters his lament over Jerusalem because the judgment that's coming upon that city for their sins. See, the problem with this nice, easy, well, you know, is the Old Testament. They didn't understand things then like we do now. The problem with that answer is it won't stay put. It just spreads through the whole Bible. So what do we do with a passage like this? Well, I wish I knew. And if I could... I would just pretend it wasn't there. But it is there and it troubles many and it has troubled me and still troubles me to some degree. I don't have the answer. If I had the complete answer, the few minutes I have here this morning wouldn't give me the time to give it. But I don't even have the complete answer. What I have are some thoughts that have been helpful to me that I'm going to share with you. They aren't final thoughts. The fact is this week, I may drop by Blake's office and I'll find another perspective. Blake will kind of say, well, what about this? And I'll say, oh, yeah, that's, that's a good point. A lot to learn about a passage like this. But let me share a few things that I'm hoping will help you. It's an unusual message, I understand, but, but I think we've got to face this kind of thing squarely. I can't believe that some of you haven't really been bothered by this. So the first thing to remember is we have to read the Bible backwards. That is, we don't start with Genesis, we start with the New Testament, and that means in particular we start with Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. That's where we begin. You want to know God? You want to know the truth of God? You start with Jesus Christ. You go back to the Old Testament in light of Jesus Christ. Now, when you observe the life of Christ, you observe the character of God. Jesus said to his disciples, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we know what God is like through Jesus, and we know that Jesus is not about slaughtering people. Far from it. Jesus lays down his life to save the world. He is not a man of violence, but of peace and love and justice. We all know this. So that immediately creates a tension. Jesus, oops, we have, God's probably saying, you got that one wrong, let's stop. (laughs) So, So we have Jesus showing us what God is like. And then we've got this Old Testament passage. It doesn't seem to fit at all 
with what Jesus said and did. On the other hand, it does fit in this sense. Jesus continually quoted the Old Testament. He drew life from the Old Testament. His own understanding of God and the kingdom of God was shaped by the Old Testament. Jesus dug deeply into the Hebrew scriptures and the images he used and the teachings he gave show that he's drawing them from that well of life. There's no question that Jesus regarded the Old Testament as the word of God. And it's the whole Old Testament, even the uncomfortable stuff. You see this, for example, when the enemy's tempting him in the wilderness. He's tempted, and three times he responds by quoting Scripture, twice from Deuteronomy 6 and once from Deuteronomy 8. Do you know what Deuteronomy 7 says? You go to the very first part. It says, when God drives out the Canaanites before you, when you go in and take the land, destroy them all. So do you really think Jesus read Deuteronomy 6, skipped over to 8, and never knew 7 was there? No, he knew it was there. And in fact, it's many places in Deuteronomy, which is the book from which Jesus quoted more than any other. And so we have this, this situation in which Jesus is not like that. I mean, you can't imagine Jesus calling on people to slaughter others, and yet Jesus is following his God and Father who is revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. What do you make of that? Well, one thing you find when you see how Jesus deals with the Old Testament is that he doesn't treat every passage equally. It's not as if everything functions on the same level. It's all inspired by God, but it plays a different role in God's revelation depending on, on what it teaches and how it relates to him and his teaching. So, for example, he's, he's heading to Jerusalem with his disciples, and he wants to stop in a Samaritan town, so he sends people ahead to make arrangements. But the people of the town said, you're going to Jerusalem? Uh-uh, you're not coming here. You know the whole story about how the Samaritans and the Jews were always at odds. So the Samaritans saying, no, you're going to go to Jerusalem? You can't come through here. We don't want you here. So James and John, two of the Lord's disciples, asked the Lord, Lord, do you want us to call fire out of heaven? In other words, to consume them in a blaze? Where do they get that? They get that from the Old Testament. They get that from Elijah. Elijah had soldiers come to arrest him, sent by the king, and he calls fire out of heaven and it consumes the soldiers. So here's the disciples saying, Jesus, do you want us to call fire out of heaven? You remember Elijah, Jesus? You remember how he dealt with this kind of thing? You're gonna let these people disrespect you, Lord? You want us to call fire out of heaven, put things right? And Luke tells us Jesus rebuked them. He just turned to them and rebuked them, and they went on to another town. Now, that's interesting because they're simply saying, Lord, should we do as was done in the Old Testament? Jesus says, you don't even know what you're talking about. One manuscript says, you don't even know what spirit you're of. So clearly, 
Jesus isn't just taking whatever's in the Hebrew Bible, inspired it may be, but he's not just transposing it into the current time and saying it's okay and it's good. So what's going on there? Well, I think one thing that we can, come, that we can say, looking at his teaching in general, is that Jesus understood that the Old Testament reveals the will of God under constraint. That is, God is constrained by the situation on the ground. Let me try to explain it this way. There's the issue of divorce. Was it acceptable to divorce your wife for any and every reason? That's what the Jewish religious authorities wanted to know. That's what they bring to Jesus. They're trying to trap him with the question. And of course, at this time, men could put away their wives, but except in extremely rare situations, women couldn't put away their husbands. So this is very much a male conversation that's going on here. And, and they want to know, can they do it for any reason? And Jesus said, you know, that's not what God intended. God didn't intend for divorce to take place at all. And they said, well, why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce? And he's saying, look, you've completely misunderstood that command. Moses didn't command it. You're being permitted to do it. The command that God gave was that you give a certificate of divorce to the woman so that she is then able to remarry. It was all about mitigating the effects of divorce on the woman because if she didn't have a husband or if she wasn't living in her father's home, she was very much in danger at that time in, in the culture. So she needed to be free. She needed to prove that she could be free so she could remarry. But Jesus says, God gave you that command because of the hardness of your heart. Ideally, there would be no divorce, he's saying. God doesn't support divorce, but there's going to be divorce because of the hardness of human hearts. So, so here's a command to mitigate it but it's not the best option. Do you see that? It might be right for God to give that command, but only because the situation is so vexed and troubled. Let me try to explain it this way. Years ago, I knew a woman who, who was in dire straits because her husband was a frightening and violent man. He was an alcoholic. That was the least of his problems. He was, I mean, he was frightened. He scared me. And, you know, she got a restraining order on him. Well, that only works when a person is sane. You know, when they're filled with rage and they're ready to do anything, you don't know it's going to work. And so we had to hide her at some points to try to keep her safe. It was an unacceptable, unendurable situation. We tried to reach out to this man, but he was having none of it. It finally comes down to the point where we're having a conversation. She's having a conversation with her pastor, and her pastor says to her, she asks, what should I do? Her pastor says to her, you need to divorce him. That's what I said. Straight up. First thing you need to do is you need to divorce him. Well, she was at the point where she was ready to hear that. Now, you understand, I don't believe in divorce. I don't think it's a good thing. But in this situation, it was the right thing. Not a good thing, but the right thing. Do you, you understand? 
I mean, we're constrained by the situation. It's not the way I want it to be, not the way she wants it to be, but we have to do something. I said, you need to divorce him. She said, do you know a good Christian attorney? I said, sure I do, but what you really need is a Philistine. (laughs) By which I meant, not that you don't want a Christian attorney, but you want somebody hard as nails. Because you need somebody who's going to protect you, who's going to fight for your rights. You do not want to get run over here. And she was the personality that would get run over. Now, listen to this. I mean, here I am, Christian pastor, saying, number one, you need to get a divorce. Number two, get a Philistine of a lawyer. Doesn't sound very Christian, does it? It's not that I believe in divorce. It's not that I think... A lawyer should be unethical or anything like that. It's that this was a dire situation. Something needed to be done. I thought, and I still think, it was the right advice to give under that circumstance. Constrained by the situation. Listen, we're constrained by situations all the time. All the time. We live with that all the time. You ever thank someone for serving their country? Thank you to a man or woman who serves in the military. You thank them. You know, you know what the military does, right? You know what the military does. You know they kill, right? You know people suffer. So why do you thank them for their service? As a Christian, why do you thank them for their service? It's because... As bad as it is, in this world, in this situation, we are constrained and sometimes, sometimes not good things, bad things are the best things under the circumstances. That's why it happens all the time, all the time. There are some Christians who say, no, you, you know, you can't. A Christian can't be serving a police force. You just can't do that. That's not Christian because you have to use violence or you might have to use violence. And, and that's a legitimate position, but most of us don't hold to that position. I don't. And it's a tragic necessity sometimes. Now, God is God, so God at any time could step into the world and change everything. He could. In fact, the Bible says he will. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, and there will be justice and peace and consolation for all suffering. Everything put right. That's God's promise. But for whatever reason, God doesn't bring that about today. Instead, God allows the world to work in a kind of quasi-independence. There are cultures and institutions that God works in and through in spite of their flaws. He does. God is constrained by the order of things in this age. You all following me on that? I mean, again, we're used to that. We see that all the time. Somebody's sick. We send them to the doctor. There are many Christians who, who feel that God has called them into medicine, so they serve in medicine. Thank God for them. But you know what? 
Anybody want to ask, well, why doesn't God just heal him directly? What do we need physicians for? Why work with medicine when half the time it doesn't work as, as hoped? Why? Why not just heal them? I've known people who've suffered from child abuse who, by the grace of God, have been able to, to find healing. But why do they have to find healing? Why didn't the heavens open and lightning strike the abuser before it happened? Why? Yes, they found healing, they found grace, and now they can share it with someone else. But why is there someone else for them to share it with? Why doesn't that someone else find deliverance directly from the hand of God? Why is God so silent and invisible? Almost all the time. At work, yes, but within the constraints of this world. So God gives laws to mitigate the evils of divorce. And you find God gave laws to mitigate the evils of slavery, but you don't find slavery eradicated in the Bible. Why not? Because it really wasn't possible. You can, you can give all kinds of commands, but, but they won't be obeyed and they won't do any good in the end. Think about prohibition. You know, prohibition outlawed the sale of alcohol. Well, you know, it did lower the amount of alcohol consumed, and perhaps some people weren't alcoholic, didn't become alcoholics because of it, but the whole black market rose up. Sometimes, sometimes a better law ends up being a worse law. My point is that God's working with this world as it is. So you come to the Amalekites, and this is not a nice group of people. They're nomads. They're very warlike. They came within an inch of destroying Israel when Israel was leaving Egypt. They're part of the whole Canaanite people, and the Canaanites, well, there's no point in sentimentalizing their way of life. It was a violent culture. Uh, child sacrifice was a part of it. Um, sex slavery was a part of it. They had temple prostitutes. Those were slaves that were taken in battle and made to serve people in the temple worship. Every manner of perversion and brutality was present in the Canaanite culture. Now, I'm not saying that, that you know, they were the most evil people ever on earth. I mean, how would we determine that? But this was not a nice group of people. They were Israel's enemies when they came out of Egypt, and they remained Israel's enemies. God has a purpose. He's, he's seeking to raise up a nation, a nation that must learn his laws and, and grow in his truth that it may give rise to the birth of Messiah who will be the Savior of the world. This was all part of his working out his promised Abraham, that, that he would raise up for Abraham a nation, and out of that nation would come Messiah. Now, how is that going to happen in this world, under the constraints of this world? Not in some imaginary world that we think could be. Not God opening the heavens and making things happen. Maybe he could, but he doesn't. He doesn't. We know that. For whatever reason, he doesn't. So assuming there's a good reason for not just establishing the new heavens and the new earth today... What is God supposed to do when he's seeking to raise up this nation in this land and 
they have enemies that threaten them. And there are these, these, well, these Amalekites. Israel gets involved in war with the Amalekites, with the Canaanites. I mean, that's part of the picture of the Old Testament. That's what happens. Call it a tragic necessity. It is bloody and it's not ideal, not in any way. But there's a necessity with the constraints with which God's working. Listen, you can tell it's not even in God's heart from the Old Testament itself. So, for example, um, in the prophet uh, Jeremiah, rather, God is depicted as weeping over Moab when Moab is the victim of war devastation. Moab, this was a pagan nation. God's weeping over the pagan nation. Or this really brings it home, I think, in the ancient Near East, when kings would go out to battle, and they go out to battle every year, and they won a great victory, they would then do the most gruesome things. I mean, just I, I, let me just allude to them without describing them because it's, it's pretty frightening. The sort of mutilation and torture and humiliation through which they put people. It included... It included all sorts of, of ways to humiliate the defeated foe, including war rape. And there was no, no embarrassment about it. The kings would actually create reliefs to depict these battles. And in just about every such relief that you can find in the ancient world, you will see mutilations and you will see rape. That's how it's depicted. So a king would go out and they'd win this victory and afterwards he would build a temple for his God that gave him the victory. And in the temple, they would have these war reliefs. It was all meant to bring glory to their God and to themselves. Now, Israel was not allowed to do any of these things. I mean, we read this passage and we're horrified by it. Rightly so, rightly so. But in the ancient world, they wouldn't have been horrified. In fact, they would have looked at Israel as being pretty mild when it came to warfare because God forbid them to do any of these things the other countries did. But David, King David, who comes after Saul, he leads in many battles and God gives him victories. Near the end of his life, he wants to build a temple for his God. And God says to him, I'm glad you want to build a temple, but you're not the one to build the temple. You have spilled much blood and fought in many wars upon the earth before me. You are not to build me a temple. Your son, Solomon, will be a man of peace that I'll put on the throne. He will build me a temple. Do you see how that shows us something about the heart of God? That whatever war is commanded is a tragic necessity. It's done under a constraint that doesn't reflect what God desires. It doesn't reflect that at all. In the creation myths of the ancient peoples, the creation always came out of war. The gods would fight, and the world was the end result of it. The Enuma Elish, for example, the Babylonians tells about this battle of the gods and how the world is made out of the carcass of the god that lost the battle. It's all ugly, weird stuff. 
okay? Interestingly, in Genesis, there is no war. There is instead God simply speaking the world to existence, and then there's rest, shalom, on the seventh day. See, our God is a different kind of God. Now, you see these, these situations where you think, you know, this seems so wrong. Yes, it's wrong. It's wrong like when I say, divorce the man and get a Philistine as your lawyer. It's wrong in a sense, but right under the circumstances. Here, you have that happening here. Now, lest it sound like I'm saying, you know, the end justifies the means, I'm really not because at the end of the day, God is God and every life belongs to him and he can require it at any time. God is righteous, but it's not the heart of God. It's not his desire except under constraint and by necessity to command such things. Now, what happens as time goes on? Israel as a nation gets in, is involved in all the things that nations get involved in, whether it be, you know, the, the amassing of wealth through the economy, through wars with other nations to protect itself, or to even expand its boundaries. It does all the things that nations do. But then Jesus, Messiah, comes, and he says, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was of this world, my, my followers would fight, but it's not of this world. But Jesus comes and he does battle. That's why I made reference to Ronnie's prayer. You know, Ronnie's talking about battle, about victory. All that's so biblical. I mean, you recognized it when he was doing it. It's also biblical because Christ comes and he does battle against the forces of darkness. Every time he drives out an evil spirit, he is making war on the powers of darkness. What happens in the New Testament is not that holy war is repudiated. Instead, it is elevated into a spiritual practice. In other words, what the nation Israel was involved in, holy war that involved the shedding of blood, God's believers now are following Christ in the spirit and engaged in spiritual war, no longer fighting human beings, but fighting in the spirit. This is found throughout the New Testament. So for example, look at this text. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. You see, we do wage war, but not war the way the world does. Or take how Paul speaks about it in Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do you see how the spiritual battle continues, or rather the, the holy war continues as a spiritual battle? Now it's no longer flesh and blood, but we're battling spiritual powers through prayer and through the glad tidings of salvation through Jesus Christ. No human being is our enemy. They may count themselves our enemy, but they're not our enemy. Rather, they are those who are held captive by the enemy. 
And through prayer and sharing the gospel, we seek to set them free. So this whole theme of holy war and and these commandments that trouble us so much, they really happened. And it's part of the messiness of dealing with a world like we're dealing with and that God's dealing with. That's absolutely true. But it remains valuable to us in this sense that it depicts for us God's war on evil, God's intent to establish his kingdom. But now, after the coming of Christ, it's placed on another level, and that's how we serve our God in the Spirit. Now, early this morning, I'm talking with Linda, this Linda, my wife, and she knows I've been struggling with this sermon all week. I'm thinking, ah. I don't want to deal. This is too hard to talk about. It's so complicated. And, and I, you know, I don't know that I, I really get it. I'm trying my best. So she asked me what I'm going to talk about. And I start telling her about it. And I go on and I go on and I go on. And I told her the things I'm telling you, plus a few other things. And she said, you know, you might want to shrink that just a little bit. That's a lot of information. You know, just compress it just a bit. I didn't like that, but <laughs> I let it pass. And then she, then she asked me a question. <laughs> I didn't like this one either. She asked, she asked okay, so, so what's the inspiration here? <laughs> you know, because here, here I am, I'm trying my best to make sense and to help anyone who's struggling with these passages to see how it fits into the larger plan. What's the inspiration here? Well, here's the inspiration. It's a very simple point. I've just made it, but I'll underline it now. The inspiration is this, that we are still at war, that the war we are fighting is a spiritual war. It is not a war against any human being, but it's against principalities and powers. It is a war that's won through prayer and through the preaching of the gospel. We have a role to play in that war. And as we conduct ourselves in this battle, we go to Scripture. The New Testament shows us how Jesus fought that battle, tells us how Paul and others fought the battle, and we follow them. But we can also turn to passages like 1 Samuel 15, recognizing the tragic necessity that was being worked out there recognizing that this is not the way forward for us and that it was not even God's best and highest hope for humanity. But it does set forth for us truths that we can still draw on as we engage in the battle that's before us. God is always a good God. God is dealing with a fallen world. And he has dealt with it in grace and in patience, but sometimes severely, if it was necessary for the well-being of the world. He's called us. He's called us to join the battle in prayer, in preaching. That's the inspiration. And if it's not very inspiring to you, I don't know what to say, because that's what we're called to. Would you stand with me? We're going to close in prayer. And, and when we do close, if, 
If you're thinking, you know what, I am a captive to the enemy and I'd like to be set free, I can tell you Jesus Christ can set you free and I'd like you to come forward. I'd like to talk with you, pray with you. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. When we read the scriptures, sometimes it's hard to understand, but Lord, we do know that in Jesus Christ, we see the Father. And so we know you are good and you are gracious. And Lord, we pray that you would use us to battle the forces of darkness through prayer, through love, through preaching the gospel, Lord, by, by not allowing any human being to be our enemy, Lord, but to fight the enemy who would hold them in bondage. God, use us for that. Use us for that. Help us to enter into that. And Lord, help us as we go to the scriptures. Teach us about Christ through the scripture. Even in the hard passages, we want the whole truth, not the part, not part of the truth. Guide us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.